Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. The field of pediatric solid organ transplantation has experienced considerable growth and improvement in patient and allograft outcomes over the past 20 years. Unfortunately, long-term survival of the allograft continues to be a challenge among all organ types. Care for the pediatric transplant population can be challenging due to limited data and trials, pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic differences when compared to adults, intricacies of medication formulations, and medication adherence concerns. On today's podcast, Dr. Molly McCord, a transplant pharmacy specialist, reviews unique challenges of caring for pediatric transplant recipients and the data behind select clinical controversies in this population. The number of pediatric solid organ transplants continues to grow, although at a slow pace, with just under 1,900 performed in the year 2021 in the United States. To give this some context, that is about less than 5% of total transplants performed in the United States. At Mayo Clinic Rochester specifically, we performed 22 total pediatric transplants with 10 livers or 10 kidneys, five livers, and seven hearts. With this continued growth in solid organ transplants performed, we are seeing um, or continue to see improved short-term outcomes, but long-term outcomes continue to be an issue specifically in this younger population. Pediatric solid organ transplant is complicated, but some of the difficulties that are specific to uh, pharmacy and medications include a lack of pediatric specific safety and efficacy data. Uh, this you can imagine is due to the small numbers and small data pool with the little transplants we do, in addition to complications of performing research in the pediatric population. There's a lack of commercially available formulations that are suitable to use in the pediatric population. And then there is a lack of pediatric specific dosing guidelines. To address some of these difficulties and complications, uh, by the end of this presentation, all in attendance should be able to describe pediatric specific differences in pharmacokinetics as it applies to commonly used immunosuppressants, uh, discuss concerns related to medication formulations, monitoring, and adherence in the pediatric population, and then as a group we will review pediatric solid organ transplantation pharmacotherapeutic controversies and immunosuppression and infection prevention. Before we dive into the specifics in transplant, we'll briefly overview the immune system development in a pediatric patient. Uh, from as a fetus and as an infant uh, neonate, pediatric patients obtain maternal antibodies from the mother via transplacentally as well as via breast milk. These will dissipate around the age of three to six months when at this point the neonate and infant starts to get exposure to antigens and is able to start to develop their immune system and develop memory cells. This continues as the pediatric patient ages and reaches an adult level of immune system around the age of 20. Why this is important to transplant is for a few reasons. If we look at it from an infection uh, standpoint, these younger children are at increased ri risks for specific infections post-transplant, especially when given immunosuppression. Um, and in addition, 
this immature immune system does provide the advantage in a younger population of around less than two years old, the ability to sometimes even do a transplant across different blood types. Um, what else makes pediatric solid organ transplant different than adults? The indications are also different. So if we're looking at by organ group in our heart transplant population, uh, an adult population will have more cardiovascular disease in terms of uh, coronary artery disease, which gives them potentially more beneficial use with statins. And then in our kidney and liver population, uh, these patients have uh, more common or are more likely to experience uh, indications that are more likely to recur post-transplant. Now, I mentioned the uh, complications with long-term outcomes in our pediatric population. Listed here are some of the outcomes for kidney, liver, and heart pediatric transplant recipients. Just to give you an idea of why this can be an issue, if I'm looking at the heart transplant group, 69% uh, of these patients are less than 11 years old at the time of transplant. And then if we're looking at that 10-year graph survival, only 71% of those hearts are going to make it 10 years, which means that about 30% of the pediatric patients won't make it with the hearts, won't make it past the 10-year the mark. So keep that in mind when we're thinking about these complications. To give you an idea of how our immunosuppressions immunosuppressants work in these young, uh, this young population, we're going to over, do an overview of those physiological differences that can affect pharmacokinetics. First, we will take a look at absorption. So there are age-related changes that affect um, the rate and extent of gastrointestinal absorption, specifically in our neonates and infants. These patients have an increased stomach pH when compared to adults, so they're more likely to absorb uh, basic medications and will absorb uh, acidic medications to a lesser extent. They have increased gastric emptying time, which could delay the time that it takes them to be able to reach that maximum plasma concentration. And they also have increased intestinal permeability as well as decreased intestinal integrity. Now this can affect your medication choice because medications with increased osmolar load, such as those with preservatives and flavorings um, might um, end up harming their intestine. Next, we'll move on to distribution. As a general overview, uh, volume of distribution essentially tells you where medications are distributed into the body. So medications with a higher volume of distribution are more likely to be uh, absorbed into adipose tissue or have higher protein binding, and those with less volume of distribution are more likely to be limited to the plasma. Now we're thinking about changes in our neonates and infants, compare those to our adults. Our neonates um, have a large total body water percentage, which means that medications that are hydrophilic are usually require higher dosing. And our neonates also have a lower amount of adipose tissue, meaning those that are hydro or lipophilic usually require less dosing than compared to an adult patient. Next, we'll move on to metabolism. Uh, there are age-related uh, changes in the liver biotransformation system that affect medication metabolism. Typically, our younger patients and uh, our infants will have decreased hepatic metabolism when compared to adults. This is because there are decreased hepatocellular uptake, as well as decreased enzymatic capacity of a lot of our commonly uh, common uh, cytochrome P450 enzymes that affect medication metabolism. Uh, specifically listed here, I have included cytochrome P450-3A4, CYP1A2, and then 
Um, and with these, if we're thinking about the changes over time, you can tell that CYP3A4, um, if we're comparing them to an adult, which would be about that 100% line, uh, is much lower in our younger infants. But as children continue to age, once I get to this young age of one to 10, their enzymatic capacity can actually exceed that of an adult. And that's one of the most important things to keep in mind with our immunosuppressants as many of these undergo these types of metabolism, um, meaning that these children might require higher doses of these medications. And lastly, we will discuss excretion. The uh, kidney function of an infant or neonate at birth is less than that of an adult, and they won't reach full capacity until about three to five months of age. I have included the modified Schwartz equation on the screen here for reference as I refer to it later on, and this is an equation that is used to calculate or estimate renal function in pediatric patients commonly. Now, kidney maturation and excretion isn't necessarily going to play a huge important role in our immunosuppressant dosing. However, I wanted to mention it because there is a common misconception that tacrolimus is excreted by the kidneys. Um, so I just wanted to mention that it is not actually renally eliminated, so this shouldn't play a huge role in terms of our dosing. Now that we've discussed the physiological differences, um, we will be able to apply those whenever we're talking about the specific immunosuppressants. Um, I have included here just a general overview to uh, remind us how some of these common immunosuppressants work. Um, essentially, our calcineurin inhibitors, tacrolimus and cyclosporin, are going to inhibit the production of IL-2, which will decrease T-cell uh, proliferation. Our mTOR inhibitors are going to essentially stop the cell cycle, being able to decrease proliferation. And then similarly, our uh, mycophenolate and azathioprine um, will also dis uh, inhibit cell proliferation. To talk about our specific medications, first I will discuss calcineurin inhibitors. Um, I will mostly focus on tacrolimus as it is the most commonly used in our pediatric population and has been shown to have lower rates of rejection um, as well as approved side effect profiles specifically in our pediatric population. We discussed how metabolism affects, uh, the changes in metabolism in our pediatric population affects our drug dosing. And studies have shown that many pediatric patients actually require higher relative doses per kilogram than adults do to be able to achieve, achieve those similar drug concentrations. Now, this is likely due to that increased enzymatic capacity that I spoke about earlier. And we can see that after children um, reach puberty, the clearance of tacrolimus actually decreases. So these younger patients that have increased enzymatic capacity um, sometimes even require up to a 2.7 fold higher dose than these children after they reach puberty. Now, what does this mean? Um, Theoretically, if you have a pediatric patient who is, receives a transplant before they've reached puberty, that just means you need to continue to monitor their trough levels and make adjustments as necessary um, after puberty and continue to monitor those uh, and to avoid overdosing. Um, with this increased dosing requirement, it might bring up a question of, is the normal twice daily dosing appropriate in these younger children who required these increased doses? There was a retrospective single center uh, comparative cohort study that evaluated and compared the efficacy and safety of three times daily dosing to twice daily dosing of tacrolimus. 
and pediatric kidney transplant recipients specifically. They found no significant difference in time to reach therapeutic trough concentration, as well as the patients who achieved therapeutic concentrations at seven days. So what this means and what I take away from this is that empiric three times daily dosing in pediatric transplant recipients, even those who are um, pre-pubertal, pre um, isn't necessary. Um, but if you are having trouble reaching gold trough levels, um, it is an option to uh, change to thrice daily dosing, especially after you've made other interventions. It's important to keep in mind that changing to thrice daily might decrease adherence, which also has um, complications associated with that. Next, we will discuss antiproliferative medications and specifically focus on mycophenolate mofetil. Mycophenolate mofetil is dosed utilizing uh, body surface area uh, based dosing. The regular dosing, uh, typical dosing of 600 milligrams per meter squared every 12 hours is included on here. And of note, that's equivalent to 1,000 milligrams twice daily in adults, which is a pretty typical dosing. Now, for in terms of clearance changes in pediatric populations for this, um, infants have increased clearance when compared to our adolescents and adults. So, if you're worried that the infant is not getting appropriate dosing levels, there are a few things you can do. AUC or area under the curve monitoring is an option in mycophenolate, and there are pediatric um, validate, validated equations to calculate this in our pediatric population. And then if um, this is uh, seen, there's also the option of doing thrice daily dosing in mycophenolate as well to be able to uh, be able to get better, um, to be able to get to the goal AUC. However, again, you have to take into consideration adherence concerns. There was a study that compared safety and efficacy of mycophenolate mofetil between pediatric and adult renal transplant recipients. And with this, they found that the rates of rejection and renal, and, uh, renal function were similar between the two at 12 months. However, they did see that there was an increased rate of leukopenia, diarrhea, and weight loss in children who are less than six years old. So with this being seen, that leads you to the question of what can you do if these patients experience these side effects? You have multiple options that you can do. You can divide out the dose into three to four times daily, which does seem to be effective. However, keep in mind that again, adherence concerns are applied. If patients cannot tolerate mycophenolate whatsoever, there is the option to switch to azathioprine to replace it. But typically we like to stay with mycophenolate as long as we can. And another option that we can use is to temporarily decrease the dose of that mycophenolate. However, there was a study conducted at UCLA that found in pediatric kidney transplant recipients, specifically those patients who received subtherapeutic dosing um, for more than a month had a 60% rate of rejection. And this is specifically for those who received 75% of that goal dose of 600 milligrams twice daily. So if that were to occur and you need to re reduce that dose significantly, adding a steroid, corticosteroid, if it's not already on board, could help reduce the risk of rejection. Next, we will talk about our mammalian target of rapamycin inhibitors or mTOR inhibitors, and specifically focus on sirolimus, as this is where a lot of data exists for pediatric transplant recipients. Again, we see increased uh, clearance in a younger population, but for this specifically, it's school-aged children. So this is not our, not our infants. Um, this is the school-aged uh, children, and this is um, shown to be increased compared to adolescents and adults. 
With this, sometimes dosing needs to be divided twice daily again. Something that is interesting is that different metabolites have been seen of sirolimus when compared to adults. So in our younger children, they actually have these hydroxylated metabolites present. And these metabolites result in dramatic half-life differences of sirolimus. Half-lives of seven to 12 uh, hours have been seen in these younger children and compare that to like 60 to 72 in adults. So this significantly affects the uh, monitor monitoring that we would do with sirolimus. So adults, we would have to wait a, a week to two weeks to be able to see a change in dose and see that reflected in the trough level. Whereas in these younger children, we might be able to see that change in a few days. Something else of note is that these metabolites might also cross-react with the assay used to monitor trough levels. And so the trough levels that we use for adults might not be exactly applicable to our pediatric patients, but it's still unknown exactly what that means. That brings us to our first question. If everybody could pull out their phones, tablets, laptops, everybody on Zoom, pull up an additional tab and go to pulleverywhere.com slash mayorx or text mayorx to 22333. First question is children who are one to 10 years old need thrice daily dosing of tacrolimus empirically due to increased enzymatic activity when compared to adults. All right. It looks like most people have answered B, false, which is true. Um, well, false, which is the correct answer. <laughs> um, with this, uh, the reason why this is not true is because empirically, while these patients do actually have that potential to have increased enzymatic activity, empirically thrice daily dosing won't necessarily get them to the gold trough level faster, but it is an option if it's very hard for them to achieve their gold trough level on that twice daily dosing regimen. Now that we've spoken about the individual considerations with these medications, we'll talk more about medication formulations, monitoring, and adherence. About one-third of adolescent-age children have difficulties taking medications. Now, this is due to multiple reasons. Some of those can include the taste of the medication, size of pills, and feelings of discomfort. Now, a lot of these specific issues can be overcome and are usually psychosomatic, but might require therapy to be able to actually overcome those. So picking a medication formulation a patient can take is very important to adherence. Another consideration in our pediatric population is enteral access. So many of these patients will have uh, tube feeding or uh, G-tubes post-surgery. And so it's very important to keep that in mind. Um, where these G-tubes end up is going to be uh, affect alter or affect absorption of medications. If tube occlusions occur, that can be another complication, as well as drug-food interactions, especially with those tube feeds. The first group of medications that we'll talk about are the calcineurin inhibitors, um, specifically uh, tacrolimus um, being one of the most commonly used medications, used to not have a, a, a commercially available formulation that could be administered via a G-tube. We used to uh, extemporaneously prepare a suspension with the immediate release capsules um, that could be administered. However, there is now commercially available formulation of granule packets that can be mixed with water or another liquid and be administered. So the suspension is no longer made at Mayo Clinic. Tacrolimus also comes in that immediate release capsule, like I mentioned. This can be administered sublingually if need be. 
It also comes in multiple extended release formulations. Um, the capsule with brand name Astrograph uh, is approved in pediatric renal transplant recipients four years age and older, um, but Inversus um, is not approved in pediatric transplant patients. Um, and there's limited data for use of that, of that specific medication in this group. Um, cyclosporin modified does come available in a solution that can be administered via G-tube. Both of these can be administered into the stomach or post-pyloric. And with post-pyloric um, administration, increased absorption has been seen. If gastric residuals do exist, those could decrease the absorption of these medications. And then if you're having trouble achieving gold troughs and the patient is on continuous tube feeds, an option that you can do is separate it from tube feeds by one hour before and or one hour after. Although this is not necessary, it could be an option to take if you're having trouble reaching those gold troughs. Our next medications are our antiproliferative medications. Um, mycophenolate mofetil comes in a commercially available suspension. Mycophenolate specifically um, comes in tablets and capsules, and both of these are pretty sizable, so maybe hard to swallow for a pediatric patient. Azathioprine um, is, does not come in a commercially available suspension, but one can be extemporaneously prepared. Both of these, again, can be administered directly into the stomach or post-pyloric, and increased absorption has been seen with azathioprine. Again, gastric residuals can decrease the absorption of these medications, and again, you can potentially separate mycophenolate specifically from, from tube feeds, both an hour before and after. Last, we'll talk about the mTOR inhibitors. Uh, Sirolimus comes in a commercially available solution that can be used. There aren't a whole, there isn't a whole lot of data for pediatric patients specifically in terms of giving in regard to feeding times. Um, so just give consistently consistently with with a tube feeds, whether you're holding it or doing con continuous tube feeds. Of note, Everolimus does not come in a solution or a suspension and only comes in tablets. However, there is an Everolimus tablet for oral suspension under the brand name Affinitor Dispers. Of note, this is only approved, FDA approved for oncology indications and like it's very expensive and likely want to be covered by insurance. So it was not a viable option in our solid organ transplant recipients. With medication formulation um, selection playing an important part in adherence, um, what does adherence mean exactly for these pediatric transplants? Across multiple studies, adherence is reported vastly different numbers, but is somewhere between 30 to 70%, including adherence to lab draws, appointments, and medications. One uh, study specifically in heart transplant recipients did find that those who were not adherent to their medications had an increased rate of mortality. So an increased rate of mortality is a pretty significant um, effect of non-adherence for these patients. So there have been multiple studies that have been done to evaluate what can predict non-adherence in these patients. Uh, this study specifically identified multiple psychosocial and familial predictors. For psychosocial, patients of adolescent age with social pressures, as well as mental health issues can play a huge role. And then for familial, um, uh, pediatric patients who come from, from single parent households or some sort of conflict at home um, will also predict non-adherence. Now, this graph uh, represents death-censored graft failures for 100-person years by age and in, in uh, tran transplant recipients. 
of note, you can see the graft failure peaks around the age of 17 to 22. So in the young adult time and a transplant recipient's life is whenever graft failure is most likely to occur. And this is thought to be um, at least and partly due to not adherence in this, in this specific age group. Um, this non-adherence in this age group could be due to multiple reasons, but thought to be a lot uh, due to poor judgment in this age group with still, develop, still developing brains, but having more, uh, having more autonomy from their caregivers in terms of their medications. This age group also is more likely to have risk-taking behaviors and emotional reactivity. Um, at the same time that this uh, increased risk of graft failure is seen, these patients are also undergoing a very important transition of care period. So in this time, uh, depending on what the century you're at, the age is a little bit different, but these patients will transition from pediatric care to adult care. Um, and if this is not done correctly, um, not adherence can be a, a major issue. And this transitions of care period has been associated with uh, rejection as well as graft loss. So to kind of assist with this, centers need to have a good solid plan in place to be able to make sure that transitions of care period is as smooth as possible with um, the patient um, having all this autonomy that is new to them. In addition to having a smooth transitions of care period, how can you improve adherence in the pediatric patient population? Um, first is providing routine counseling to recipients and caregivers. Um, this counseling should be both verbal and written. So if I were to change the medication dose for a pediatric transplant recipient, I'm telling them that I'm changing their dose, but then also writing a prescription and um, giving them an updated medication list that they can refer to later on and they don't have to just rely on memory. Next is to reduce the complexity of the regimen. So we spoke about all the medications that you can do three or four times a day um, that are an option in those medications, but if you don't need to utilize it, the best thing to do is reduce the number of times those patients have to take medications a day because that's going to decrease the ability that they have to miss some of those doses. This also includes eliminating any sort of medications that the patient doesn't actually need to take. And last is going to be dose rounding to minimize preparation errors, uh, especially um, towards the beginning of a uh, transplant. Some of these parents are going to not necessarily have a lot of experience in medical care. So rounding those doses to prevent those preparation errors. If you're using a one or three milliliter syringe, rounding to the nearest 0.1 milliliter. If you're using a five milliliter syringe, rounding to the nearest 0.2 milliliter, that can be measured. That brings us to our second question. Um, we have a seven-year-old male heart transplant recipient who is post-operative day 10. The team is working towards getting his tacrolimus trough level within the goal range of 10 to 14 nanograms per milliliter. He is currently receiving tacrolimus granules via nasogastric tube at four milligrams twice daily, and his trough, his trough level is below his goal currently. He is also currently receiving continuous tube feeds. So overall, pediatric patient below his trough goal level receiving continuous tube feeds. Which of the following would not be an option to help reach tacrolimus trough goals? Um, increasing dosing and dividing it out three times daily, holding tube feeds for an hour before tacrolimus administration, increase the dose of tacrolimus, 
or switch to an extended release formulation of tacrolimus. All right, it looks like we have about the same number of responses as last time and most people selected answer D, which is the answer that I intended to be the correct answer. Um, other, other answers, again, you can divide out dosing three times daily to uh, increase your chance of getting that, uh, getting trough goals and having a patient of seven years of age, likely prepubertal. So it makes sense that um, his have, he's having increased uh, metabolism of that tacrolimus. Second, um, holding tube feeds for an hour before tacrolimus administration, um, that is an option that could improve your ability to reach those trough goals although depends on um, the specific patient and whether or not that's going to meet their care goals if holding two feeds is appropriate for them or not. And then increasing the dose of tacrolimus um, is an option. The patient isn't on um, an extensively high dose. If the patient was on a, uh, a high dose and um, was experiencing potentially more side effects, then that might be a less favorable option. Um, and then last, this, the reason why switching to an extended release formulation is not appropriate is the patient is receiving uh, tube feeds and would need to receive a via nasogastric tube likely. Um, so this would likely not be an option, especially in those, those formulations that are not approved uh, for our pediatric patient. Lastly, we will dive into a couple clinical controversies or clinical differences in our pediatric transplant population. In terms of immunosuppressant strategies in pediatrics, they are generally similar to adults, mostly because as I referred to in the beginning, uh, there isn't a whole lot of pediatric specific data. So a lot of the, um, the regimens that we utilize and data has been extrapolated from adult patients to pediatrics. Uh, one major difference is that we prefer to use corticosteroid withdrawal and or avoidance whenever possible in our pediatric population. Now, what this means is that um, we'll typically only, what this could mean is that steroids are only given for a set number of days post-transplant, or we have a time that we determine will be the best time to withdraw steroids after transplant. Um, the reason why this is uh, wanted, specifically I included some numbers here in our kidney transplant population um, that already have um, bone abnormalities and fractures and reduced growth pre-transplant, which can be worsened post-transplant if steroids are continued long-term. In terms of overall uh, benefits of a steroid minimization or avoidance protocol, um, I already uh, mentioned the growth, and it has been shown to be associated with improved um, linear growth in our kidney transplant population. Graft failure, not graft failure, but growth failure has been associated with morbidity in these patients, as well as poor self-esteem. Um, and poor self-esteem could potentially uh, add to any sort of mental health issues, which then could eventually potentially lead to um, not adherence or other issues of that matter. Um, steroid avoidance protocols are also associated with improved uh, adverse effects, so avoiding those detrimental effects of hypertension, diabetes, and dyslipidemia post-transplant. And then finally, um, specifically in our kidney transplant population, we've seen uh, similar acute rejection, graft survival, patient survival, and graft function uh, whenever comparing these steroid minimization or avoidance protocols. The, in terms of the pro the in terms of when these protocols have been utilized and shown to be effective, um, 
These usually are utilizing these patients who are low immunological risk and have received induction uh, therapy with depleting and non-depleting antibodies. And there was that meta-analysis that showed the improvement in height standard deviation scores. Um, included in this meta-analysis just for uh, sake, there was also a couple studies in the liver population. There were only two included, but those did not uh, show that same improvement in high standard deviation scores, albeit there was a low number of studies of the liver population included. We've already discussed it is beneficial to avoid steroids in these population, but when might we need to utilize steroids um, post-transplant? One would be if these patients are found to have a high immunological risk. So if they have donor-specific antibodies, which increases your risk of rejection, as well as positive cross-match, which increases your risk of rejection. Um, another would be if these patients have a recurrent disease that I, told, that I said were more common in the pediatric population than adults. So those that are uh, likely to recur and potentially cause uh, disease in the transplanted kidney. And specifically, I, I pointed out focal segmental glomerulosclerosis, um, which is a, kidney, a, a disease that affects your kidneys. There's also been a few studies in pediatric heart transplants that are uh, uh, so, uh, that, um, looked at steroid withdrawal or avoidance. In this specific study, um, the patients were non-sensitized, so had low immunological risk and received induction therapy with uh, thymoglobulin, which is a depleting therapy. Corticosteroids were um, not used beyond one week. Um, of, of note, um, patient survival at one year was 94.5% and um, a little less than 40% of patients did experience some type of rejection. And at one year, 14.5% of patients were on steroids. Usually these patients were those who experienced some type of rejection. So in this instance, um, steroids, uh, steroid avoiding uh, didn't necessarily um, end in any sort of patient or graft failure, uh, but patients did have some rejection. Next, we will talk about Valgan cyclovir dosing in our pediatric population. In 2009, um, the FDA approved uh, Valgan cyclovir for pediatric uh, use in kidney and heart transplant recipients for CMV prevention. Um, with that FDA approval, they uh, utilized a specific dosing equation at the bottom, which is seven times your body surface area times creatinine clearance using the modified Schwartz formula. There was a PK study done after this approval that evaluated this dosing formula. With this P, uh, PK or pharmacokinetic study, they found that the area under the curve of the valgancyclovir exceeded that of adult targets. So these patients were at increased risk for adverse effects. And this was mostly found in patients who had creatinine clearance greater than 150 or a low body surface area that was less than 0.5 meters squared. So in 2010, after they found these differences, they issued a safety alert, uh, cautioning that using their formula as is could result in overdosing of cyclovir, specifically in those patients who are low weight and had normal, uh, creat normal serum creatinine values. And so with this, they recommended a maximum creatinine clearance of 150 mils per minute um, for 1.73 meters squared and an absolute maximum dose of 900 milligrams daily, which is the dose that we utilize in adult patients. Now, why is this controversial? 
with seeing this potential for super therapeutic values of algancyclovir, many pediatric transplant centers across the U.S. utilize a lot of different dosing strategies. There was a survey of pharmacists that looked at this and found that less than 60% of these centers actually utilize that FDA-approved equation, and this includes centers that utilize it differently than what they recommended. So for those who not, were not utilizing the equation, some of them are using BSA dosing and some of them are using weight-based dosing regimens. For those that are using the FDA-approved equation and not using it exactly as the FDA uh, mentions, they're potentially using alternate maximum creatinine clearance values, um, differing creatinine clearance equations, so maybe not that modified Schwartz formula, or an alternate maximum dose. If we look at weight-based dosing specifically, there was a, a study by Villanueva and colleagues that looked at a 14 to 16 milligrams per kilogram per day dosing strategy. Um, with them, they found a good efficacy and tolerability of this weight-based dosing strategy and only found uh, super therapeutic dose uh, levels in only 11.5% of patients, but did find some sub-therapeutic levels in 38.5% of patients, but again, saw good efficacy. If you compare this to what, uh, what you would expect to see with the FDA-approved dosing, um, you would see potentially super therapeutic levels in 80.8% of patients showing that the FDA-approved dosing strategy can lead to supertherapeutic levels. What does Mayo Clinic do specifically for our dosing of algancyclovir in these patients? We do utilize that FDA-approved dose, uh, dosing equation. However, we utilize alternate maximum creatinine clearance. So um, for patients who are less than 12 months, we utilize a maximum of 100. And for those who are greater than or equal to 12 months, we utilize a maximum of 125. That brings us to our third and final question. In which of the following patients would be, you be most likely to choose a steroid avoidance or withdrawal approach to immunosuppression? A, a 10-year-old heart transplant recipient with CPRA of 40%, DSAs present, and an indication of dilated cardiomyopathy. B, a 13-year-old kidney transplant recipient who received a kidney from a living donor who has no DSA present, a CPRA of 0%, and an indication of congenital abnormality of the lower urinary tract. Or C, an 11-year-old kidney transplant recipient who received a kidney from a deceased donor with no DSA present, CPRA of 0%, an indication of primary focal segmental glomerulosclerosis. All right, that's about the same number of responses. Uh, most people chose B, and that is the answer that I intended to be the correct answer. A would be less likely to receive a steroid avoidance or withdrawal with an increased risk of uh, rejection with that CPRA of 40% and DSAs um, present, which would increase your risk of rejection. C would be less likely to be a correct answer um, with that primary focal segmental glomerulosclerosis being an indication that can recur post-transplant, um, with B being the correct answer with the uh, congenital abnormality not being an indication that can recur post-transplant and having a low immunological risk in that patient. That brings us to the conclusion of this, uh, conclusions of this presentation. Um, so in our pediatric solid organ transplant uh, patients, um, solid organ transplantation is, a is very complicated and requires care from an interdisciplinary team with expertise in a pediatric population and in solid organ transplantation together. 
Um, ideal dosing strategies of immunosuppressants can be different for patients based on what age they are. A corticosteroid avoidance and a withdrawal regimen should be utilized in pediatric patients whenever you can. And Valgan's cyclovir dosing based, uh, is, varies based on institutional protocol, but utilizing the FDA-based uh, approach as is might result in increased risk of supertherapeutic levels and uh, side effects of Valgan's cyclovir. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Thank you.